let's give folks a, a reintroduction of like your yeah. background and where you got in to the industry and how, how why are really... you qualified to teach us about this? <laughs> <Yeah. deal? laughs> like, let's go ahead. Like, where's your degree here? I was the only one you could get to sit yeah. down. <laughs> exactly. He's the only one to answer our calls. <laughs> This is episode 263 of Bourbon Pursuit, a podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. Before we start the podcast, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Last week, we revealed the news first on social media that a demolition permit has been submitted to take down the 130-year-old National Distillers Rickhouse in Louisville, Kentucky. The building has been deemed unsafe by structural engineers. There is a partial collapse of the roof and the interior support beams are deteriorating with significant amount of mold buildup. It's sad to see this historic building be torn down after all the years of neglect since it was never being used. Now on to bourbon release news. The 2020 edition of Yellowstone Limited Edition Kentucky Straight Bourbon will be on shelves in September, featuring a seven-year-old straight bourbon finished in French Armagnac barrels. Approximately 5,000 cases of this bourbon are being produced at Limestone Branch Distillery bottled at 101 proof, and will have a suggested retail price of $99.99. In Bourbon Pursuit news, we're continuing to select more and more barrels for our private bourbon club. This week, we selected two more barrels at Four Roses, an OESV and an OBSQ, both 10 and a half years old. This is going to make 22 barrels selected so far this year, and we're not done yet. So if you want to see how you can support this podcast and get access to some great private barrels, along with first access to Pursuit series, join us, patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit. This is one podcast we were super excited to record. Way back on episode 88, we did a back to basics about bourbon, and now we're going deep dive into the distillation process. It's all the hard questions on distillation that we've wanted to know, and we've got Trimp Stimson from Barrel Bourbon here to go all scientific on us. Listen close to the expert because it's definitely one of those shows where you're going to learn something new about the distillation process. Bourbon Pursuit's up for a People's Choice Award for podcasts, and we need your help. Go to podcastawards.com and register to vote as a listener. I know, registering sucks, but please, vote for us in the People's Choice and the Arts category. It would be really awesome to win this thing. With that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick, with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. As I hold this old Forester 1897 in my hands, I turn it to the back and I read this quote. The truth is, I prefer whiskey. Laura Howard. And that's from uh, The Alienist, a TNT show. There's like an engraving on here. Uh... Not really entirely sure what the connection between Old Forester and the Alienist is. I'm sure it's in a press release or something that was emailed to me that I just didn't read. But <laughs> I will say the bottle got me to thinking about all of the incredible moments bourbon has had in pop culture. Whether you want to talk about Blanton's being everywhere, uh, of Pappy Van Winkle being written into uh, the interns or justified basically pouring more bourbon than most people do in their lifetime on a single episode, 
or you want to go back to, you know, the 1960s where it was seemingly on every single show with a man smoking a cigarette in a back corner. But I'll tell you, my favorite, my favorite connection to Hollywood is The Hustler. JTS Brown is basically a drink of choice, and they talk about bourbon and its qualities that, you know, you didn't really see a lot of. Most people, when bourbon is in the conversation, it's just part of the conversation. Like, here, here's a drink. Taste it. Is it good? Do you like it? Yeah, let's keep talking about taxes or killing Uncle John or whatever. Whereas in, like, The Hustler, they actually did talk about how it was made. They talked about it, you know, eight-year-old bourbon being the very best and so forth and so on. And so if you get a chance and you want to go down, like, movie lane and you want to watch an old flick while you're quarantined and bored up to your eyeballs, go check out the movie The Hustler. And while you're doing it, make sure you're pouring yourself a little JTS Brown. While it may not be the same, it's pretty cool to drink the same thing as Paul Newman. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or whatever. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring green for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan back in our usual recording station with a friend of the show. It's been on here a few times already, but this time we're taking this kind of the next level because this was a a listener requested show of saying like, listen, like we understand we go on the tours, we get the 51% stuff all the time, but like, where's the, we need to answer some hard questions. And I, you know, we always go back and I think it was like February, 2018, we did like a back to basics sort of month uh, way back then. And we kind of got an overview of some of this, but this time I'm really excited because we're going to be going deep dive 
into the distillation process. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, we go on these tours all the time and sometimes I know what they're talking about. And a lot of times I'm just nodding my head. Yes. Like acting like I know what they're talking about. So, uh, yeah, I'm super excited. Love having Trip on. He's a friend of the show and he's getting to test out his new, uh, you know, equipment he paid for. So, uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah, we uh, always appreciate Beryl and being able to help support the podcast and <laughs> have all this nice new equipment too. So it's perfect. Yep. Absolutely. So no, super excited about it. Cause, uh, yeah, we are, like we've always said, we don't know shit about <laughs> distilling. So we're glad to have someone here who does. So <laughs> there are people that went to school for this so that they do know what they're talking about from time to time. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's go to introduce our guest today. So today on the show, you've heard him before in previous podcasts, but we have Trip Stimson. He is the master distiller and directory of operations at Barrel Bourbon. So Trip, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So Joe, keeping you busy? Always. Never a dull moment. Mm -hmm. so uh what's you know we were talking earlier talking about your goals what's some joe goals for the year oh for you goodness. guys coming off that big banner year of 2020 all those medals Loft, 2019 lofty, i guess lofty lofty goals we've got uh looking at doing the usual probably four bourbon batches we've got our rye three batch that'll be coming out here soon we actually brought that with us today uh we've got some infinite releases we've got dovetail We've got, uh, we're doing some fun things with finishes. Uh, I don't want to shine the light too much on that. Well, we can talk about that another time, but there's some really, really interesting things coming out, uh, coming down the line this year. So stay tuned. Very Absolutely. Cool. So before we kind of dive into a lot of this stuff, I think people need to know about, you know, your background and sort of like, you know, we've, I think we've talked about it before, but like, let's give folks a, a reintroduction of like your yeah. background and where you got in to the industry and how how Why are really you qualified <laughs> to teach us about distilling? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's go ahead. Like, where's your degree here? I was the only one you could get to sit yeah. down. <laughs> exactly. He's the only one to answer our call. Uh, okay. Um, so my background's in biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, degrees from college. I went straight from college and started work for Brown Foreman as a research and development scientist. I spent... What's on? 10 years, 10 years with Brown Foreman in various roles, uh, analytical chemistry, benchtop chemistry, microbiology, uh, doing a lot of distillery sciences and yeasting and distillery efficiencies. Uh, left Brown Foreman, I started a consulting company that was really focused on the craft side of the business. At the time, there were people just getting into this glorified distillery business with these great dreams of if you build it, they will come kind of ideas. And I wanted to really bring uh, a, a level of expertise to these people that showed that it wasn't all really a, a bowl of cherries. You know, th this is really what you're going to be doing. A bowl of and cherries. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. I like that. I might use that. <laughs> and lay it out there real time and say, you know, this is your investment. This is how long you're going to wait for your return. And this is how hard you're going to work. And really put that into context before people would take the leap. So I did that for a handful of years and uh, met Joe through that process. We began working together six, has it been six years? Six years ago this year. And um, we've been working together ever since. We have a very similar view on, uh, on, on the approach to everything and it just works. And he sold you on the dream of distillery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're working on still it. Still a dream. Yeah. We're, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> still still dreaming it up. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you have this idea of also doing the distillery, but, you know, we really kind of want to go and really 
kind of really pick your brain here because as we start getting into what does the distilling process look like? Like I said, let's kind of let's kind of go a little bit, you know, start from finish. And, you know, I think this is really going to be focused on a lot of the bourbon nerds and the bourbon geeks out there that really want to dive in. They want to know exactly like, you know, what do you have to do to make sure that there's no contamination, no bacteria, um, like our pH levels of thing. Um, sure. Like, you know, when you're in the fermentation, like everybody Why see- is everybody's tank so special? <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> fermentation that's, thing. That's, that's Ryan's thing. <laughs> everybody's got their special fermentation tanks, but <laughs> yep. you know, like, you know, how much gas can really come off there? And that's because you see some that have you know, clothes, you have some that are open, you have some that are outdoor, you have some that have huge vacuums on them. So I think we'll, we'll tackle some of those things there. But you know, I guess let's start at the very beginning of the distillation process. And I mean, I would imagine it just kind of starts with grains, right? It does. And uh, it's always funny to me where, you know, we, we always jump in and we talk about the distillation process. And to me, I always think of that as starting a movie halfway through, you know, you've left out so much of the important stuff prior to this distillation process that really affects your distillation. So if we go all the way back to um, to the grains and deciding what your grain bill is going to be and how we treat the grains, where does it come from? How do you mill your grains? Uh, particle size actually plays a big part in this when you're milling your grains. If you go down to, say, a powder versus like a, a grist, like the beer guys would use, the, you will get different fermentations out of both of those. Okay, so let's let's hit that part right there. Okay. So, assuming you're using different kinds of machines to get the different, uh, like I said, the different variable of like, is it a powder versus it is like a, I guess like a grist or whatever. It's sure. Like, okay, is it grist or grit? Grist. Grit. Grist. Okay. Is this is this me being like city slicker? Like I don't really know what grist means. I don't either. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I heard him say grist, <laughs> like grist mill. <laughs> oh, okay. You've heard grist mill before, right? No, I don't yeah. think I have. Okay, like, well. like uh, for grits. No, I'm kidding. Well, I was like, say, I was like, I like grits, and grits are like basically ground up corn. So I was like, is it is it like that kind of that kind of size right there? Eh, smaller give, than that. Give or take. Well, it, I mean, it's it it's like sand. It could be like thick sand in your hand versus say almost a powder. Okay, and and what you, what you've done? There's a handful of different mills people use: roller mills, hammer mills. Um, you can use the uh, cage mills, and they're all going to do a, a little bit different type of grind on your grain. Is it kind of like so? Like when you do coffee, like say like an espresso is like a real fine, you know, right. grated up coffee, like real dense. Whereas like a pour over or something is like more kind of bigger uh, grain, I guess, or sure type of texture. Well, and let's go back to what the whole goal of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to take this grain, this, we'll say a kernel of grain, and we're trying to make available as much of that starch as we can before we move into mashing. So ideally you would think the finer we can grind it, the more available the starch is. So you take that and you go across all these different ways of milling the different types of mills and how they get to that grind. So some mills and throughput are going to create heat. Well, you don't really want heat because then you start to really denature these starches that you can't use in your fermentation to create alcohol. So there's different mills will require different throughput, and there are certain ways to use each mill so that you get the right particle size without generating the heat. Well, I want to go even before the grinding, like to the actual grain and the growing of the grains okay. and like the soil and the regions they come from. Can 
Wasn't this a distilling podcast? Well, uh, well, you said you want to go all the way back to the grains, so it just... All right, uh, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. So because you are distilling, like, you know, and removing a lot of things from the original, I guess, grain itself, mm-hmm. does it matter, like, which region it comes from or which type of soil or type of uh, grain it is? You know, from corn to corn, not saying, like, corn to wheat or corn, but sure. from different varieties of within that species. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and even go a step further in every year. You know, annually, if we have a lot of rain, you're going to get a different grain than you got the year before. And, you know, one test that uh, many distilleries will do is they'll look for aflatoxin. So if you have a really rainy season, you're going to get some molds out there. And aflatoxin being a byproduct from mold can show up in the corn that's delivered to your distillery. So aflatoxin actually will fluoresce under a UV light. So if you take a thing of grain and you put a UV light over it, you see specks of um, uh, fluoresced grain, aflatoxin. And then if there's any aflatoxin, you don't, it's don't bad. you won't accept it. Yeah. yeah. Do you know that, Ryan? Do you know what aflatoxin was? I didn't, but it does sound like a mold or a fungus. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know the, yeah, I know what fluorescence and like inflorescent, you know, and like you know, bacteria is kind of starting to, yeah. <laughs> inoculate themselves and stuff <laughs> it's so. like a it's like a fish poster at this <laughs> point <laughs> all right so at this point we we're now we're now milling the the grains and stuff like that we talked about the size of it i guess uh let's let's kind of go on to the the next portion of this okay so we we've got our we've got our grain the size we want now we're going to move into mashing uh you're going to use you know warm water to further break down that grain to make the starch available so in this process um you're going to either have a malted grain that's going to provide the enzyme or you're going to add uh, an exogenous enzyme that you've bought from a company who's isolated and concentrated this enzyme that you're going to add at the same time. Either way you do it, the goal is the same. You want to take these large, long-chain carbohydrates and cut them down into small three-carbon sugars. Uh, Anything over a three-carbon sugar, the yeast can't do anything with. So these enzymes are going to cleave these long chain molecules into these smaller chain molecules uh, during this process to prepare for you know the actual fermentation process so these these big mash tubs that we usually see when we go through i know we've seen them at heaven hill we've seen them in a few different places i mean is there um is there a size that these things usually end up being like as a recommended size or i mean can it be as small as like a a child swimming pool versus something that's a huge tank i mean the the science will remain the same no matter what size you use the enzymes are going to work at the same temperatures, um, but the mash tub is typically sized with the size of your process. So you're not going to have a big monster steel and a small mash tub. Uh-huh. And inversely, you're not going to have a huge mash tub and a real small steel. Now with yeast, because they, I guess, multiply. So like, well, the, is yeast, it, the yeast isn't added yet though, right? No, oh, yeah, we're not, not there yet. Not, no, yet. not, there, not, yet. not there yet. Okay. okay. Don't jump Let ahead. Me back up. Don't jump ahead. Because I, I got another question here, which is, you know, you said about adding warm water. Now, I know when I go to these things and you touch them, like, they're pretty, they're they're hot to the hand. Yeah. Like, what's the, I mean, what's the, when you say warm water, um, it's not like bath warm, right? I mean, you're adding, you're adding some, I would say some scalding hot water to it or something like that, that, or it's heating up. Like, what's, right. what's going on in there? So, I, I say warm water because at this point, you, you've likely recycled warm water off of something else. So, you, you've, you've taken uh, cold water probably off a, through a condenser or something, taking that heat, you recycle that heat into another process. So in this, let's just say it's in, into the cooker. 
So you're taking the warm water off something else into the cooker with these grains while adding steam, either your direct injection or your jacketed, or maybe you have tubes in your, in your cooker. E- either way, you're adding heat somehow, and you're really on your way to almost a boil. And then you're going to add, you're going to add these grains at different times for different reasons. And these different enzymes are actually going to work at different temperatures. So you've got to be careful because if you, if your enzymes are in and you go above a certain temperature, then those enzymes are going to denature. They're not going to work. So you're not going to get your conversion. So if you have like a, like a 500 gallon, say whatever mash cooker, is there like a certain percentage of, you know, the mash to water that you, or like, what is that percentage? I guess you, you, you know, you, you run, you can run a thin beer, what what we call a thin beer or a thick beer or anything in between the two. You don't want to go too thick because then your yeast isn't going to work. It's going to be too thick. There's going to be too much pressure. The yeast isn't going, to, isn't going to be active. If you go the other way and you go real thin, the yeast is going to perform well, but now you've used all this energy up to that point to have a fermentation, but you could have actually had some more grain in there, so you're getting more bang for your buck, let's say. So the trick is to find out how thick can I go, maximize the alcohol from the fermentation without going so thick that it starts to suppress the yeast. Gotcha. And so I guess another question with the, just the mash tubs in general and the cookers, you know, I think the ones that I've seen usually, I mean, inside of it looks like a KitchenAid mixer. Yeah. Right. They, they, I mean, they're, they're sitting there spinning everything around and trying to keep that going. Like, is that, is that normal industry standard that, that you have that? Or is there sometimes there's, you know, somebody with a broom at the end of a broom handle and they're trying to just like mix <laughs> a, it around or something. A canoe paddle. <laughs> a canoe paddle. So, there you go. That's how we mix up our stuff. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've seen it done about, Every which way you can imagine, uh, the, can, the canoe paddle is definitely a thing. Uh, it does happen. Uh, on your larger scale distilleries, though, you're going to have a nice agitator. Uh, the tubes on the inside are, or the coils are going to be for uh, your steam, either coils or jacket. You can go either way. But, yeah, it's, I mean, that's pretty much an industry standard. So how long does a typical process like this usually go when you are when you're trying to mash it and you're trying to basically add water to the grain to start basically making them change their molecules. I don't really know if the, that's the right word I'm looking here for, but try and change their properties a little bit. Um, it, again, it's going to depend on how much you're trying to do at one time. So let's say, let's, let's operate off, say a thousand gallon working capacity. You know, you're going to, you're going to go in, you're going to add your corn, your hot water, you're going to go to a boil, you're going to cook for, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever, whatever, wherever you land in your profile. Then you're going to start to cool down, put some rye in there, and you're going to cool a little more. And then that's where your enzymes start to work. You've got your alpha and your beta amylase enzymes uh, that work at the 155 and the 135 uh, degree ranges. So that's really where you're going to start to get a whole bunch of your conversion is right there where the enzymes are working. And then you can hold it there for another you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, again, this is going to be a little bit of trial and error depending on your facility. But you're probably looking at... Two and a half to three and a half hours probably for, for a, a full mashing uh, cooking session before you go into your fermenter. And, and how do you know it's like ready? <laughs> well, you, I mean, it, that's the trial and error part. I mean, you, you start with a basic profile and at the end you see if there are things left on the table. You take measurements of a, diff- of a bunch of different stuff through your fermentation, and we can talk about this later, that actually will measure You'll, it will actually give you ideas of your starch conversion, your uh, your the fermentation, how much sugar's left over, which there shouldn't be any, right? 
So if there is, you've had problems with uh, yeast or some other variable, you, you measure all these things and, and you come up with the most efficient profile. What for, if you didn't have any instruments like back in the day? You're just like, <laughs> and you just in, in the woods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just dip your finger in it and taste it. Like, is, can you tell from that? Or, I mean, is there a. It, it, you can. If you were to take just a basic mash early on, right before you start your fermentation and you taste it, it will be sweet. It, it will have sugar sweet properties to it. At the end of your fermentation, when you taste it, it's going to be sour. So. Once you taste the difference in the two, then you know on the front side what you're looking for. So another question that I had about looking at the grains that are going into, you know, you had mentioned at first, like you add in things a little bit later, like you add in the rye later. Add in, it's like, so is there a, is it because corn has a different property and that's why you add it in first or do you add in rye first? Like what's the, like which grain do you choose first because of just the, the chemical nature or compound of it? The, the corn traditionally is is the hardest to get to based on its uh, physical structure the kernel itself breaking all of that down and actually getting to the available starch is the most difficult in corn that's why you boil the crap out of the corn first then everything else is at cooler temperatures so you start at the, you work your way to the top and then back down um rye you, you don't want to you don't really don't want to cook rye too much and then the malted barley the barley is, is traditionally just for uh, the enzyme at the low percentage. Now, as you increase that percentage, you can actually, you can get some good flavoring from it. Uh, but malted barley traditionally is for the enzymes. What about any other like malted grains that you put in there? Like, does that affect the time that you come in? Because I know if you malt something beforehand, it's probably going to affect what you're going to be doing in the mashing process. Absolutely. And you can, you can malt just about anything you want to, and you're going to get some enzymatic capability out of that malted grain the enzymes are still going to work in the same temperature range so even if you decide you want to malt corn you can't go up and boil that corn and just because it's malted corn come back down and the enzyme is going to work you, you you still denature the enzyme once you go above that temperature so all right so i think we've we've kind of got this part now we're ready to go to have some yeast, right? Well, I think at this point, well, I mean, it's it usually leaves the the cooker, right? And you have some sort of vacuum or tubing or something that gets it to a fermentation tank, correct? That's correct. And so kind of talk about, I mean, because you, you've been in this process before, like, what does it look like to build a system that is either like vacuum sucking, um, whatever it is to actually pumping. M- pumping, moving all this stuff from, yeah, not probably vacuuming stuff. It's probably, <laughs> they, probably don't, they don't have a Dyson hooked up. So <laughs> <laughs> they got a water pump. Very, very powerful Dyson. <laughs> yeah. But, but kind of talk about some of those, those things that maybe people don't see. So, you know, let's start with the most efficient way on a large scale. You're going to have some nice stainless steel pipe. You're going to have a really nice pump. And when it's time to go from the cooker to the fermenter, you're going to push a button on your switchboard and it's going to open a valve. Your pump's going to kick on and you're going to empty the cooker into the fermenter. How many gallons per minute? Let's talk my love language. It depends. You know, there's a um, it, th- there's a piece of your process that this fits into. You know, you've you've cooked for so much time. Now it's going to take you if you've got a pump that runs 25 gallons a minute, you've got a 100 gallon tank it's mm. going to go a lot quicker than if you have a ten thousand gallon tank and a 25 gallon right. minute pump sure so you size everything so that it takes the right amount of time to move the mash from the cooker to the fermenter and that will change whether you're running 100 gallons or 100,000 gallons um so again that, that's engineering but you you basically work it into your your process 
And then on the other side, on the craft side, it can be, it can be anything. I mean, it can be pull it out and, you know, drain it into a bucket, take the bucket, dump it into the fermenter. It can be hook a hose to a smaller pump and run a hose across the floor to a, to a fermenter. Any way that you can, with some sort of sanitary, good sanitary practice, get the cooked mash from the, the cooker over to the fermenter. I mean, whatever makes sense, that's, I mean, you can do it a hundred different ways. So from anybody that's never visited a distillery or know what these look like, why, why couldn't you have a cooker and a fermenter do the same exact thing? You can, you can. So if, if you wanted to do one fermentation a week, you could have a cooker or even, even distillation. Let's, let's do the whole thing. You could actually have a pot still that you could cook your grains in, ferment in, and then also distill from. The problem with that is that you've now occupied one space to do all three things. The idea around having typically one cooker and three to four fermenters is that you can set it up so you're doing something every day. Yeah. You're not waiting on it to finish all three. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I got you. I got you. So the other kind of question about this is like when I know that we've had the opportunity to go to distillery and, you know, you can put your hands in the mash and everything like that. But give folks that are listening kind of an understanding of like when something is actually going from the cooker to the fermentation tank, like, you know, is it like, uh, is it just like water at this point or is it basically like water with a few crumbles? Like kind of talk about the consistency of what this product is at this point. Uh, it's again, if you're running the thicker, if you're trying to run a thicker beer, it's going to be just a little bit thinner than oatmeal. And if you're running a, a really thin beer, it's, it's going to be cloudy water I and mean, it'll be, it'll look like really muddy water, I guess, consistency wise. And are you usually trying to like hit the middle ground with both these spectrums right here? Is that kind of what most people are trying to hit? Yeah. It, it's, it's trying to, for your facility, trying to maximize the yeast performance as well as the grain throughput so that you're not sacrificing uh, alcohol. So that you're not leaving alcohol on the table. All right. You neither want to be a Miller Lite or a Stout. You want to be like in the middle <laughs> somewhere in the middle, <laughs> somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. So all right. So now we got to the point that we've got we've got our product going into the fermentation tank, right? That's right. And we've seen it. Usually there's there's a pipe that somebody moves and it's draining into there. Sometimes it right. actually drains. Sometimes like uh, from bottom up. Sometimes like it can be can can, can be pumped in there. See, I said it right. Pumped in there. Yeah. <laughs> so so at this point, once it starts filling up, talk us through the process. Well, let's talk about yeast for just a second, and then yes. and then we'll been waiting. Yeah. <laughs> so there there is a few different ways you can go about uh, using yeast in your fermentation process. Um, the most frequently done, most frequently used, and easiest to use is just, is going to be a dried yeast. So you you order a dried yeast in known quantities from a manufacturer. They tell you how much yeast to use for whatever product you're making. They'll even give you a few little flavor notes that that yeast is going to create. You take that in the recommended quantities, and while this fermenter is filling up, you take the yeast and you throw it in. Done. That's it. How many um, different varieties of yeast are there for, say, like bourbon production? Oh, my like goodness. Any, I mean, thousands or? Yeah. It could be. Could be. I mean, yeah. it's, again, we're talking about natural species. So you can have one and it can mutate while we're sitting here having this conversation. Not really that quickly, but pretty, but, 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 but pretty close. <laughs> Throw a rind into a mash tub. I'm and, sure it'll happen. Yeah. But <laughs> it'll, it'll mutate right away. There are, 
There are a lot out there, but oddly enough, there are fewer than you would expect available for folks like you and me who, who, who are, if we were to buy from somebody. That's why you got some guys in Danville that specialize <laughs> exactly. in it, right? Farm exactly. solutions. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's another question. This one came from uh, one of the Patreon uh, communities because we knew going into this that it would be tough to ask a, a lot of hard questions. So we kind of reached out to them. And so Richard Hunter asked, you know, during the mash rest, is there a temperature there that affects the final profile that actually goes into potentially the final product? Or is like, basically, do you wait for that, that mash to like come to almost like a, like a lukewarm state before you start actually pushing it or pumping it into a fermenter? So it's a good question. Um, let's, let's assume for a minute that when we talk about, a, I'm not exactly sure the context in which he's referring to a mash rest, but in, in my experience, I have done what we'll call a mash rest in certain types of rye fermentations. And the idea behind that is during that rest period, it actually gives the enzymes time to continue to break down starches. And that's really what that, that rest or starches or in the rye case proteins. Um, that's really what that rest is allowing time for. Uh, and I'm assuming that's what he was asking. And if not, I'm happy to, Come back and revisit the question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we'll get there. That's close enough. Yeah. All right. So we're in the fermentation tanks. You've added to the yeast. At this point, we've got you know this is where the model of the magic happens, right? You got the bubble starting to form. You got that crust layer building on top. Now, what is what is the chemical breakdown that's actually happening that we're we're watching at this point? Basically, what you're looking at is starch molecules being converted into alcohol and CO two. Uh, on the very base level, that, that's what's going on. So the alcohol is created, the CO2 bubbles off, and that's what you're seeing. That's why it looks like it's boiling, even though it's not. And then I know that we've been to some distilleries, and when you're watching the boil, it, sometimes there's like, it almost looks like red, almost looks like there's blood in the water. Like, mm -hmm. is that just like fats and oils from it's, corn? Yeah, it's oils from corn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, and it's like hypnotic. I always look at that, I'm like, oh, am I on something? You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like just takes your breath away. I don't know. And you know what? And you, too, like if you put your head down, it's like, <gasps> like you almost lose your breath sometimes. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing that. because That can be pretty dangerous, especially to um, fermenters that are closed. That's what's wrong with me. You, you walk by and open that door and you get a face full of CO2. It, it can knock you out. Yeah. So kind of talk about the, the idea of why somebody would do a, a closed fermentation versus an open fermentation and why you see some that have... Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you see some that have almost like the submarine doors on them, like the right. submarine windows, and then you see some that just have huge uh, vent hoods on top of them too. So this is this is the age-old argument that you know will never be solved about why we do open top fermentation versus a closed top fermentation, and you know we can get into cypress and stainless, you know, sometime too as well. But when you look at an open top fermentation, the idea that people some people have is that it's a sanitation issue. So a lot of people will use a closed top fermenter for that reason. So I'll back up and say that if you condition your yeast properly, and this is not necessarily the box yeast, but if you condition yeast properly prior to adding it to your fermentation. What do you mean by condition? Like push-ups or pull-ups? <laughs> <laughs> like sprints? What, what do you Yes. Basically, <laughs> basically, it's a yeast training program prior, prior to the fermentation. <laughs> All right, yeast, get your, <laughs> get your butts out there. <laughs> and, and, and as funny as that is, it's, it's really what you're doing is you're you're putting the yeast in, in the environment similar to what it's going to see in the fermentation. So, yeah, it's basically like 
training for marathons, what I like to say. CrossFit for yeast. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you, you said, you know, there's like thousands and thousands and they're living things. Like how do you prevent from those thousands and thousands of variables from taking over that particular yeast? Is it like you have so much of that particular yeast that it's dominant and can out compete other yeast strands or how does one bad apple not get in there and start taking over? So up until you start your fermentation, everything is pretty much, we'll say sanitized. You know, you basically boiled the grain. Uh, everything is clean up until it goes into the fermenter. So at that point, you have basically allowed the environment to interact with your clean mash. So that's when potential bacteria can set in, potential molds, stuff that's in the air that you don't see, but that we all know is there. That's when it starts to interact with your mash. Now, if you have a, a strong yeast strain that has been conditioned properly, it's going to outcompete any of those naturally occurring microorganisms in the fermentation so that you don't have to worry about something else taking over. Also, as soon as that yeast starts working, if you can time that properly to where you add your yeast as your uh, fermenters filling up, that yeast is going to start to create CO2 and create an anaerobic environment, which is an environment that's lacking oxygen, yeah. which means those bacteria and mold uh, spores are not going to grow. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yep. And so this is where the magic is happening. So this is also, you know, when we when we go and we visit these things and you see these uh, these fermentation tanks, we'll get into the, well, I think we'll get into the steel versus cypress in a minute. But one question that I've always had is like, sometimes they're like, oh, we do three or four days. Some people are like, oh, we're six, seven day what's what's the determining factor there to say like oh it's going to take this many days or like oh we we let it go for 10 like does that really matter at the end of the day so yes and no um a lot of it again is going to be yeast strain a lot of it's going to be how thick a beer you run how much starch is actually in that how much is available in that fermentation for conversion uh if you run a thinner beer and say you don't temperature control your fermentation and you go from say a 70-ish set point and it skyrockets into the 90s it that yeast is going to roll through every available amount of starch in that fermentation very quickly so you're you, you're going to get um a large majority of your alcohol in that first 12 to 24 hours and then depending on how well you're uh, your your enzymes work, you get your secondary fermentation, and that's what the additional days are for. If you run a thicker beer and there's physically more starch in there that's available to convert and you want to control your temperatures in your fermentations through uh, chill water, you know, more coils in the fermenters, then you can actually take longer to convert all of those starches. And basically what that does is allow you to make up for say weekends or holidays or things like that. You control the temperature, which drags it out longer and there you run a thicker beer. So there's more starch in there. So the process just just physically takes longer. It's not like a barbecue and low and slow isn't necessarily better. <laughs> not necessarily in this case. So like do different, so I rye, a rye whiskey versus a bourbon or a, you know, a American malt or whatever, do they, you know, does each grain have different fermentation days, I guess, required for them? Again, it goes back to starch content. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the fermentation times are really going to be determined by, you know, the thickness of your beer, the type of yeast strain you're using, and whether or not you want to uh, control the temperatures of your fermentation. People always talk about like rye, they're like, oh, rye is such a pain in the ass because it gums up everything. Is it yeah. like, so is it like a thicker beer or is it? 
so traditionally rye is going to have a whole lot of protein by comparison. It has a lot more protein than you're going to see in any of these other grains. And for that reason, you get that the foam. I mean, people talk about gumming stuff up and foam and that's it's protein. So, you know, if you, if you eliminate that protein, then you can eliminate the problems with rye fermentations. So when you do rye, are you like, all right, I get my A, my A list yeast over there can do the most burpees and the most <laughs> pushups to take this on. Cause it's going to be a bitch. <laughs> um, there are yeast strains that are going to perform better in a, in a rye than others. Okay. Um, but also you still got to take care of that protein. I mean, that, that's really what's going on is, is that protein. They, if you, if you've ever seen a rye fermentation go awry, see what I did there? <laughs> no um, pun intended. Yeah. It will, um, it almost balloons out the top in a lot of cases. And what that's doing is that protein is actually holding all that CO2 in there. So now you're starting to suppress the, the performance of the yeast. And if you do that, it's just going to slow, gradually slow your fermentation until it stops. And when you stop prematurely, you've left all that converted starch on the table. So now instead of getting, say, a uh, 7 or 8% beer, 9% beer, you're getting a you know, 1 to 2, 3% beer because your fermentation didn't go all the way to completion. So go get that paddle. Start stirring <laughs> it up. <laughs> or do you have to scrap it? Well, rule of thumb is you never scrap it. You know, gotcha. you, you got to figure out a way to make it work. You know, one of the things that that Joe always refers to is, you know, when we first met, he asked me, what do you do when it goes wrong? And just, I, I just rolled off the cuff. Well, it never goes wrong. And, and you know. He probably loved he, that answer. He did. And he, <laughs> he still tells that story. And at the time, I didn't really understand why I said what I said. But but what what I'm saying when I say that is that you have to be ready for these things. You have to understand what's going on so that when your rye fermentation goes awry, you you have something, some protocol in place to say, okay, you know, we're sitting here looking, you know, the, the proteins are thicker in this particular fermentation than usual. We need to make a corrective action. And just knowing what to do to combat each of those problems that comes along, then it, you know, it's expected. You know, it's, it's not when something, if something goes wrong, it's when something goes wrong. Right. And if you operate with that mindset, then you, you're just prepared. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're still in the fermentation process here. And I think we, we, we skipped a step because there's one thing that we always talk about, and that's the sweet versus sour mash, right? I mean, this is where this all happens in this stage too, correct? That's right. So kind of give folks an idea of like when we say something is sour mash, what does that mean? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner 
that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So kind of give folks an idea of like when we say something is sour mash, what does that mean? So a sour mash is when you... You take your mash and as you're you're either in your cooker or on the way to the fermenter, you're adjusting the pH. And the the reason for a quote unquote sour mash is because yeast strains will often work better at a lower pH. So your your pH is going to be a little bit different depending on where you are in the world. You know, our our water is, you know, it's never seven, right? It's it's never going to be neutral. You're you're it's in more the, basic here, right? Is that the is that the magic number of seven? Well, have, seven's no neutral. Yeah, seven's neutral. See, and then know. you have acidic or basic. So, Did you go to Trinity? What the hell? You need <laughs> your money back. So, <laughs> quiet for just a second. We're gonna let Ryan take over from here. Yeah. So you know your rise gonna be probably a little less than seven. Actually, you're probably gonna be in the, in the mid sixes, mid, mid to upper sixes, and to go from that down to say the mid fours, uh, that that's the souring process. Uh, now, when people say sweet mash, that's when you just put the mash in the fermenter and roll with it. So you're sitting at probably a, a six five six eight pH, and you just slowly allow it to naturally sour. And that's that's another interesting point is that even though you set a sweet mash, it sours too. You know, you're, you're everything is souring the whole time. You know, by the by the time you're done, both a sweet mash and a sour mash have finished at a, you know. A three five to a four pH, let's say. So why do why do people make a big thing of saying like, oh, we only do sweet mash? In my opinion, I I prefer to do the sour mash only because what you're doing is you're creating the environment geared for the yeast strain that you're using so that you get the best performance. When you when you use a sweet mash, you are just creating a um we'll say just a, a random random fermentation and you're throwing a yeast strain in. So it's More not variables. Exactly. Well, it's not conditioned to that particular. It's like a, it's like a tailored suit versus a suit you buy off the shelf. You know, the tailored suit is going to be custom tailored to you. It's going to fit perfect. Whereas another suit, well, it'll get the job done, but it's not perfect. You got high waters or you know, <laughs> <laughs> MC hammer pants. Yeah. <laughs> so you bring up an interesting about pH. So like, Say you're in a different part of the country, like where water is, say, like a lower pH. You know, you're out west where you got a lot of, uh, trying to think of the word. Uh, anyways, water is, you know, more acidic or something. Um, do, is, I guess is there buffering systems put in place to kind of straighten that out before it, you know, goes in? Or will the yeast and everything kind of it, it'll bring it to that point? <laughs> it will work. And uh, I've not run into a situation where the water is too acidic. Uh, typically what you're doing is you're adding either back set or some sort of, 
acid, phosphoric acid, or something to bring that pH down. Usually, you're going to start up close to seven, Got no it. matter where you are. It's going That's to, what it, I meant. It's higher. Go, yes, yeah. higher. I got you. Yep. It's it's going to vary between that six and a half and seven, no matter where you are. But the direction from there is always going to be down. Gotcha. And so there's another question that came in from David Klassman on Patreon, and he kind of asked about you know we talked about basically the uh, the sour mashing process and is the is the end. And I'm going to try to like adapt his question a little bit, and then there's one more after his. Is the flavor more consistent when you go through a sour mash process versus sweet mash, which could just be like we're going to flip a quarter this time and see what happens. There are there are a lot of variables that go into producing something consistently. Um, and in order to create a finished product that is exactly the same day in and day out, then you want to be able to replicate everything the exact same way, you know, exact best you can upstream. So starting with grain all the way through, if there's something you can do to control an aspect of a process or measure to better control the aspect of a process, in my opinion, you should do that. So if we're, if we're talking about the flavor in the finished product, does a sour mash or a sweet mash, you know, make the most sense or have an effect? I'm going to say that the sour mash is going to be the best way to control the variables that are going to affect your finished product. Do you think you got that philosophy from working like somebody like Brown Foreman where you're like, don't screw it up or, you know, keep it. It's like, you know, we don't want any variables, but say, if, say you're like just starting, you know, your own, you know, thing, what would you still would do the same thing? Yeah, I think, I think I would only it, so many people don't know, you know, the, the idea is that you, you take, you take some some medium, some grain, starch, corn, sugar, water, whatever, and you throw it all in a fermenter and or a bucket or whatever you're using. You throw some yeast in there and magically you get this wonderful product. And, you know, you will get alcohol. You will get some sort of flavor. But what if you make the greatest stuff in the world and you have no idea how you did it? <laughs> right. So if, if you, you, you've got to meter yourself as, as you go through these things and by by really measuring each of these steps and controlling as much as you can in the process, you have a much better chance of reproducing the exact same thing at the end of the day versus leaving too much up to, uh, up to chance. And so another question that, and this is really where David's David Klassman's uh, answer, or sorry, question really comes in is that, so say that you are done mashing or you're done doing bourbon for uh, three months and you want to do a run of rye. Now, do you use a, a bourbon back set? into a rye mash or vice versa or do you like hold some back for the bourbon to like do that consistency or does having a rye back set could that affect the flavor of what the sure eventual bourbon will be sure um again that's going to be up to the individual do you want to do that it will it work yeah sure it'll work is it going to affect the flavor yeah but it's it's still going to provide you know biomass for for your yeast cells it's still going to adjust the ph like you wanted it to but it, it, yeah, sure, it'll affect the taste. I mean, you're 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 taking a uh, bourbon back set and you're putting it into a rye mash. You're gonna you're you're adding other flavors. So, like, say you come off summer shutdown, okay, and you haven't distilled in three weeks, and there's no back set there. So, do you go make a batch and then just to be back set, or what? How do you how do you do that when you've shut down for like three weeks or something? Most folks would just run a sweet mash and start over. Gotcha. Um, you know, and a lot of times if your back set is 
too low, pH is too low, if it's too acidic, then you won't use it at all anyway. And you just run a sweet mash. Um, but you, you know, on small scales, you can actually buy acids to adjust the pH. Once you get up into, you know, 95,000 gallon fermenters, it doesn't make sense to go out and buy a whole bunch of acid to adjust your pH. Right. So you, Sounds so, like one hell of a trip. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, you, so you try to utilize what would be a waste product and, uh, and, and use that for benefit. We're five, six, seven days into the fermentation. Now it's time to get it over to the still, right? So kind of talk about what that looks like. How do you get rid of, um, you know, the leftover waste and all that sort of stuff too? So... Once your fermentation is complete, and, and ideally when I say complete, you're moving the fermenter to the still as the very last molecule of alcohol is being made. And no, you can't really measure that, but you know, as far as the, you know, the molecular process, that would be the most advantageous way to do it. So you're, you're moving it into the still and Let's start. We'll, we'll start with a. Uh, we do pot still first. Sure, there, sure. There, there's a lot of different ones, but say you're, you're moving your your fermenter to your pot still. Um, you seal up your pot still. Uh, you turn on your steam or your direct fire or however you're heating this pot. And in a pot still, you basically have to boil what's in the pot to drive off the different compounds to go through uh, through your column or through the helm of the line on however you're set up. Whether you're a traditional pot or you're a pot column hybrid, um, the, the science of what's going on is still going to be the same. You're heating up what's in the, in the pot itself in order to separate the things that you want from the things that you don't. So we know that vapors are starting to go up, right? And that's, that's your first... Um, why, that's, why, I want to know why... Sorry. Go ahead. Why is there... What is the design of the pot for? Like, what, what is... I guess, why did they make it those shapes? Like those big teardrop shapes? Yeah, great question. Uh, that's a great question. I, I think some of it, some of it is probably just because it looks nice, but some of it too. The like the alambic stills have that real, real pretty helmet style on it. What that does, it's almost a form of reflux. So it, it's it the vapors go into a big space, and the heavier stuff falls to the wayside, catches the sides of that, and rolls back down, and has to be heated again. To, to make it through the big space back into a smaller space to then go on to the condenser, you have to be the right size. Gotcha. You have to be um, light enough to where you pass right through the opening versus hitting the side sticking and sliding back down, I guess, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And, and we're taking everything out of the fermentation tank and putting it to the still, correct? Like even like that, those two inches of cake that you see on the top of the fermentation tank too? You can do it one of two ways. You can move the whole thing over and do what they call distilling on grain, which is all the grains are in there. Or you can actually take it, pull the grains out, and use the cake for something else and just put liquid in there. So like basically you're running it through a coffee filter at that point, something like that? A uh, coffee filter or some, cloth, some, some kind of press. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think a coffee filter might yeah. be a little too much. I think probably just... Really, like, really uh, big uh, coffee filter. A, a, nice, a nice little fine mesh strainer. Carrot, well. carrot cup. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here. We're heating, we're heating everything up. And now we have basically our first vapors are coming up. Uh, and then from there, they usually go travel through another pipe and they go down through a, what you said, a condenser or a doubler, correct? Yeah. So you can, you can set it up where it has a doubler and you'll go from the, the, the pot still through the helmet, through the line arm down into a doubler 
which is you, you basically what you, you don't really double the proof, but you do go up, say, we'll say 15, 20%. You know, you're, you're going to increase the proof of uh, what originally came off the still. Then it's going to go from the doubler to the condenser where it gets, uh, it comes in contact with a cool shell, shell and tube heat exchanger typically is what's used. And that vapor is going to cool down, run down the sides of the condenser and out as a liquid. What is the doubler doing to get those 15 proof points higher? What's going on in that doubler? So they always say doubler, like, I don't know. That's yeah. Or thumper. (laughs) If if you've ever, if you've ever heard it, uh, if you've ever been next to one of those things, uh, one of those thumpers while it's running, you hear it, it's going thump, 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 thump. And what's happening is, um, the vapor is actually breaking the surface tension of the water coming back up and revaporizing itself to move on to the condenser. And as it does that, that water almost, it's, it's almost like it's not, not really a filtration, but it's pulling impurities out of that alcohol and then further concentrating the ethanol itself so that once it does hit the condenser, it has gone up in proof a little bit. Great. Yeah, makes and, sense. And so this is now we're we're at the what's called the tail box, right? And people start seeing that, you know, you have the ability to kind of see that that white liquid start flowing through. But this is another question that came, uh, comes from Jim Eaton. And he wants to know, and maybe, I don't really know how this works on a large scale, but how do you know when you have the heads, hearts and the tails? And also try to make sure we explain that to our, our listeners, what that that nomenclature actually means. OK, so traditionally the heads, hearts and tails cuts are the three parts of the distillation. The first part being the heads, which is going to be uh, methanol, a small, very small portion. It's going to be methanol and some other items that you don't really want. The hearts being the center of the distillation is what you're actually looking for. It's what you want to keep. The tails are going to be some, uh, it's the very end, the real oily material that's left after uh, you've pulled everything out that you want. So the heads, first of all, in a pot still, as you're heating things up, you've you've got thermometers, hopefully, in your pot and toward the top of your column so that just before you either go to your doubler or your condenser, you can monitor the temperature. That temperature is going to tell you what items are coming over at that point in time. All of these things, you're basically separating based on physical property physical weight properties of each of these compounds the lighter stuff obviously is going to come off first the heavier stuff it's going to take longer to heat up because you got to it's heavier and you got to heat it up more and push it up further um so the methanol is going to come off first and so if you hover around it's like 164 165 somewhere in there hover around that temperature once that temperature goes up a little bit further methanol has gone and you can actually let that go out the vent you don't even have to take the heads cut you can you can condense it and then dispose of it or you can just let it go out the vent and then start condensing around your you know 172 173 where you're starting to get into your your real the beginning of what will be your heart's cut which is where the ethanol starts to come off okay so that makes sense so now that now that i know that there's like some temperature some instruments here it's not like Shit, Jerry. Sorry, it's your day, man. Go in there and taste yeah. it. Make sure, make sure we're in the heart. Make sure that's so. the head cut. <laughs> you taste that yeah. methanol. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I guess also explain to some of the health risks that are involved with it too, because I think that's one thing that many people don't understand is that you know you can 
you can find moonshine from everywhere, but if you're not getting the uh, the right type of stuff that, you know, apparently can make you go blind or something like that. Yeah, methanol or um, wood alcohol is it's sometimes referred to uh, in large concentrations. It can affect the optic nerve and it can make you go blind. Um, it takes I think it takes quite a bit to to do that. It's you know, we're, we're talking real small, you know, from pot still. Uh, pot still size fermentations we're talking pretty small amounts of methanol and during your training did you have to actually take like taste a heads or a, a tails to be you, like oh, this is this all right now i know what it tastes like well you can't it, it's very similar to acetone it's it's very acetony uh, note so it's very distinctive and it's 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 got a like a, a, a sweet almost a sweet note to it as well so once you tr- pass from hearts i'm sorry from heads to hearts it's pretty distinctive i mean you know it Mm -hmm. and then also like with the heads and the tails i've heard that you know i I, maybe you said it already but you can basically just run that through the still again so you you can um again the heads if you make a uh, pretty precise heads cut you either won't have it or will dispose of that there's no reason to run that through the still again because you don't want anything there anyway um, the tails, you can run that back through the still again and try to further concentrate some of the alcohols that are in there and some of the flavor compounds and separate them from the, the larger molecules, the oils and things that you don't necessarily want. However, at some point you're going to have to dispose of that because if you keep taking, you know, 20% tails and putting it back in, all of a sudden you're not going to have room for your, for your initial batch volume. So at some point you've got to just say, okay, we've gotten everything we want out of this and it's got to be disposed. Absolutely. And so I guess, you know, we, we kind of talked about methanol being the, the head side of it at what point, and, and also that's the temperature wise, but at what point do you know the tails is actually starting to hit? That's going to vary a lot depending on, well, I say a lot, it's going to vary a fair amount depending on the grains that you use. So the different grains, the different yeast strains, fermentation profiles, all the things upstream, like we talked about before are going to have an effect on the actual flavors or chemical compounds that are produced and those chemical compounds are going to vary are going to vary the temperatures that you're looking at between your heart's cut and your tail's cut so really it's going to be driven by uh somebody's going to have to stand there taste nose and make a judgment call and once you've done that and we assume that everything upstream is done the exact same all the way to that point. Every time that tails cut becomes pretty much a hard cut. Now, as things begin to vary, you might have to spend a little time looking at that tails cut in order to make sure you're cutting it in the right place. Sounds good. Yeah. So, so now we know the pot still side of things. Like, so let's, let's look at the column, right? Cause you say you're like steaming or heating at the bottom of, of a pot still, but sounds like a column's a lot easier. Yeah, that's what it does. <laughs> I mean, that's why yeah. a lot of the big boys do it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's cause it's, it, it's probably more efficient and it is more consistent. So kind of talk about that. So with a, with a, with a column still, you have a, a, a beer feed tank that basically pumps beer into the top of the column well about two-thirds of the way up just below the rectification section and you're going to pump beer in there at a preset uh volume so if it's 10 gallons a minute 20 gallons a minute you know whatever it is each still is set up for about that flow rate and you can't really change that a whole lot they're they're set up for that they're they're optimized at that flow rate so what happens is as that beer goes into the column and drips down, floods those trays, you have steam shooting up from the bottom. 
And as that steam comes up from the bottom, it basically pulls the compounds out of what's falling. So it, and it just carries it on up and you'll go through all the sieve trays up to the rectification area where you have your bubble caps or the bubble trays that are tra traditionally going to be copper. Um, those bubble trays, if you've ever looked at them, they look like little mushrooms and there's holes in the mushroom and it goes up and it follows the contour of the mushroom, goes around and then goes up to the next one. So the idea behind that is that, uh, the larger, more cumbersome molecules will actually get caught on the sides of the copper and fall back down the next tray. Or if you make it all the way through, uh, the bubble cap and hit somewhere else, in that layer, you're going to drip back down, hit the tray. And then there's also downcomers that are basically little pipes that come off the bottom of the tray that if the tray gets too full with liquid, it's going to overflow and fall down to the next one. So in order to get back up to that tray, you have to revaporize and go to the next tray. And this is going over and over and over. And the whole idea around this is to separate those molecules so that you can further control not only what you get, but how much of everything you they're like, get. They're like gatekeepers. They're like, you, you got to stay down there until you're ready. Like, you ain't getting through this until <laughs> in some sort of way. Okay. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, and at that point, it's it's following the same exact process, right? I mean, it's it's usually, it's it's coming in, like you said before, it's it's doing the elbow pipe down to the doubler and then to the condenser and then, then through the, the tail box, yeah. right? So pretty much the same process just depends on how you're actually uh, steaming away or, or heating up these grains at the end of the day. That's right. All right. And then so now that you're, you're doing all this, the one thing that I've always wondered, you know, we always talk about like, oh, yeah, the back it goes to the pigs or sorry, the, the waste goes to the pigs or whatever. But where's when do you actually like get the waste out of there? Like it's, you know, you're, you're, you just said there you're running this through a, a, a column still 10 to 20 gallons a minute and it's usually continuously running sometimes 24 hours a day mm -hmm. so where does the waste go so with a column still once that whatever has stripped from the beer goes up goes to your finished product the stuff that is left over goes down and it goes all the way down to the bottom of the still and it gets pumped out into a slop tank in some cases they'll actually separate they'll do thin stillage and thick stillage um, but either way it goes out the bottom of the, the still and then can either be separated or go into a tank with a pot still. Once it's done, you turn everything off. You have to take the time to pump out the pot into, uh, some stillage tank, some slop tank. So does there still nutritional value in that, or it's not just all stripped out through the, the distilling process with, oh, that, no. with those grains? It's very protein rich. Yeah, that's why you see farmers lining up by the dozens to take this stuff. I mean, I uh, actually actually own cows myself and um, feed them slop because the slop's got, in a lot of cases, 23 or so percent protein in it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And they, they put on some quick weight. There you go. Better, yeah. Much better, quicker than grass. As I say, better than the grilled cheese sandwiches I'm eating all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, another question is uh, proof coming off the still. Like, how do you how do you figure out, like, what the variable or how do you, how do you control what's coming off? Cause you know, for being a bourbon, you, you can't come off more than 160. And I know that a lot of people out there, they're like, Oh, like we do 125, we do 130. Like how do you control the proof that's actually coming off of there? So with the pot still, as your stills running, you're coming off based on your, your weights again and ethanol and on down the line. And 
you're going to start coming off at 160 or whatever, 165. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be real high. Um, but then what happens is as you bring everything else over the finished product, whatever is finished in that tank at the end of your run is going to be 125 or 135 proof, whatever it is. Um, you control how much you want to let through via deflamator, uh, which is basically like uh, a, a condenser before the condenser, except the stuff that you don't want at that point flows back into uh, a tray in the top of the column and basically gets revaporized again. Uh, the column still is very similar. You have a deflamator up at the top that says nothing over, uh, we'll say 191, um, 191 degrees can go by. So there's enough cooling water in there to hold that temperature at 191. Anything that vaporizes at a temperature higher than that goes back down. Anything that vaporizes up to that temperature can go through. There we go. Problem solved. Now I figured out. Now I know what the hell's going on there. Yep. And so I guess, uh, you know, there's another question that, you know, before we kind of, I mean, I guess at this point we have, we've distilled and now we just put the shit in a barrel, right? And we wait, right? I mean, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You, yeah, I mean, you decide at what. Well, what, entry proof, you got to decide what entry proof right. you want. That's true. That's true. So your, so your water to alcohol ratio is going to affect maturation and uh, your finished product. So. Tell us the argument for a lower entry proof. People argue that the lower entry proof you're going to get the water interaction versus the alcohol interaction is going to pull different flavors from the barrel. So if you do low entry proof versus high entry proof, then you're not going to get as much play from the, the water piece of the puzzle. Is that true? Or is that just like somebody just thought of it? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah you put, if you put, the reason most people, most of these larger companies are going in at 125 is because it costs more money to go in at 110 or 105. You know, you put more water in the barrel and water's not really what you want, right? right? It's the alcohol. So to go in at a lower proof, you're actually spending more money. You're sacrificing more money to get more of the flavor that the water essentially brings in. Well, what would be the argument to say? Well, let's uh, let's just let's just go 120 all the way. So we'll distill at 120 and we'll barrel at 120. Like, does that does that have an economics factor in it as well? Because you know you could just go ahead and distill at 160. Like, what would be the argument of saying like we we could do one or the other? If you if you decided that you wanted to just distill at 120 and then go into the barrel at 120, uh, you you obviously you wouldn't have to cut anything. You would go into a tank and then directly go into a barrel. You still have to gauge to make sure you were going in at the accurate proof, but it would make your life a lot easier versus having a tank of 135 proof and then deciding you want to go into the barrel at 115. Now, all of a sudden, you're having to gauge that tank. I'm assuming that there's like a major difference in the flavor of the whiskey that you're getting off the still versus something at 160 versus 120 versus 135, which is also going to equate to what you're going to be putting into the barrel. Like, is, is there a reason why you wouldn't just always go at 160? Or is it because you get some actual more flavor out of a, a lower proof off the still? I think that's up for argument. Uh, I'm not sure. It, it sounds, it's like the argument of pot still versus column still. Um, there are a lot of guys who will prefer the pot still because you get the Maillard reaction. You know, you get some of that car caramelization because uh, you're in direct contact up to the boiling point in that pot. You don't necessarily get that. 
uh, in, in your column still. So my question was with a lower proof versus a higher entry proof, does higher entry proof stand up to age better or like oak properties better or does it matter? Like for long, say you're one, you're like, your goal is, I, I don't want to bottle this at four to six years. I, I want it, you know, a 12, 15 year product. Does that matter? Entry proof matter on that? Great question. I think it's going to be up to the individual to decide, you know, what, what it is exactly that you're looking That's for. Boring. I know. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I got an idea. Let's, let's go buy some white dog and we'll go, yeah. we'll, we'll just do some 12 year experiments and we'll, we'll figure it out and here. Again, there are so many factors that really go into that and, it would take a lot of data points to, you know, give a, a definitive answer, I think. Sure. But that's the, fair. At the end of the day, you, you, as long as it tastes good to you. What is your feeling, though? <laughs> <laughs> or opinion? Facts are optional. Um, you know, I, I have to taste it. Yeah. How's that? Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. So at this point, I think we've almost hit the the whole entire part of the process. But there's, there's one more question that comes from one of our uh, Patreons as well. His name's Jack Johnson. And he says that I'm curious about the... Um, the end proof, right? Like when you actually go and you bottle something and say you want to do something that's bottled and bond and you put this huge dump and huge barrels in there and you go and you, you know, you try to add a little bit of water and uh, is it a hundred proof? Like, is it, is it really scientific or like, what's the, uh, what's the leeway to say like, Oh, this could be like two points of variable difference in here when it actually goes and gets bottled. So the, the TTB uh, reg regulates all of these things and currently they're being uh, some of these things are being revisited but for spirits you're allowed 0.15 percent or 0.3 proof below what you say on the bottle you're not allowed to go over because if you go over that's tax dollars you didn't pay uh, but you are allowed to be under they don't care and, about the integrity. They just want their money. <laughs> I was not going to say that out loud. <laughs> so, and they are, and they do go to uh, stores and pull random samples and perform distillations to check to see that what is on the label is actually what is in the bottle. I got a proofing question too. So like, say you have something like that's hazmat, you know, like 140 or, you know, or... But you're, you're doing a big barrel dump, you know, say like hundreds of barrels. Are they all 140 proof or is there some that's like 120? How do you get to a final proof of 140 when you're dumping a bunch of different proofs together, I guess? You know, hopefully it evens out. Right. It's, it, it's all over the board. Yeah. I mean, you know as well as I do that two barrels sitting next to each other in the warehouse could be completely different from each other, even though they started life off the same distillation. There's no way to really know until you do it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you dump your allotment of barrels and wherever the proof lands, it lands. And, you know, if you've been doing this for a hundred years, you have some idea off, you know, which floor and which rick house on which side of what farm is going to produce certain types of barrels. Um, I think maybe I was making it harder in my head than it actually is, but, <laughs> <laughs> which happens sometimes. <laughs> and so but that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so Kevin Dillon has one last question. This kind of like brings us all full circle here. Is that like, so we've, we've gone through the process. We've, we've made everything. We've bottled it, blah, blah, blah. But how do distillers efficiently clean a column still or just any still or just basically all the equipment to make sure that, you know, as you go on shutdown, like what are those things that are typically happening so yeah you know, if you if you rinse your still on a regular basis after you use it then all that stuff's not going to dry up and get crusty in there and you're not going to have to do a real intensive clean on a regular basis 
Um, usually what happens is uh, the stills are cleaned with caustic, you know, a little 2% caustic solution, you know, whether you're doing it by hand with a hose or whether you're pumping it from a tank. In some instances, when that's not enough, you use citric acid, especially with copper, you're going to use citric acid solutions. When you do that, you have to be careful using the citric because copper is your basically your expendable asset at this point. If you use that acid too much, it will literally eat a hole through the side of your still. So, like, don't want that. I got a question. Like, so older stills, like, even though you clean them and try to, do they, I guess, produce a better or different flavor because they're older, because they're seasoned, or it's like a good or, cast iron. Yeah, you know, like a, like a good cast iron or a green egg that's been used for ten years has a bunch of smoke flavors in well, it. I don't know. It's interesting if you if you look inside of some of these older stills that have that are 100 years old that have been well taken care of and cleaned, they look new on the inside. You know, the, you, you clean them, and each time you clean with citric acid, you pull a layer of copper off so it looks clean again. And if you do that enough times, eventually you're going to run out of copper. Right. <laughs> Use your copper <laughs> sparingly, you know? is what he said. And, and, it, and it is, it's not a cheap fix once you've done yeah, that. Yeah, copper is expensive. I would think so. I would think so. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot today. And not only that is we didn't really even talk about the stuff we were sipping on. It was fantastic. Oh, I know. The, was it batch 22 or batch 23? What, what would we open over there? Uh, can you look at that? I think it's 23 on the end. Yes, batch 23. Oh, barrel so batch good. 23. Oh, it's so good. I mean, yeah, and I was a big fan of the rye. Yes, the rye was fantastic. Yes, absolutely. You rye three, it'll be out here shortly. Yeah, you all are you all are putting together some awesome blends over here, man. Thank you, thank yeah. you. We uh, we work hard and we enjoy what we do. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And then, uh, I mean, you've also brought a few other things right here. So you got uh, 21, 22, 23, I think batch 20 as well. So we'll have to go off the air and, and taste them and kind of uh, get ready our notes afterwards. But I'm sure they're all going to be home runs. Yeah, I'm excited for this pear brandy cask finished rum. Ooh. Oh, didn't you have a rum question? There was <laughs> one one rum question. Well, let's let's go ahead and ask it right here because I think it's uh, it's something that people are interested to know about. So this is actually from Josh Shans. He said, with Barrel, I'm interested in more about their rum. Like, what is their process on picking blends of Jamaican, Martinique, Guiana, and Barbados rums? And what do they look for in the yeast for the rums? Like, Piombi. Do they have any thoughts on the current GI Bill going on with Barbados as well? <laughs> Damn, that's I know. Wow. Sorry, he said, sorry, Trip. We oh, should have wow. skipped he it. Said, no, love, he said, I love the rum offerings and like some more uh, late shed on those subjects. Wow. Um yeah, great question. <laughs> Talk uh, to Joe. Oh uh, yeah, we uh, you know the the rums are something we don't do a ton of by comparison. Uh, we really enjoy it. You know, it's rums are very unique in their flavors, and a lot of them use used bourbon barrels, so you get a lot of the same flavors. Um, we don't get into necessarily the actual yeast that's used in rums. We do look at some of the processes used in the different regions that create certain flavors. But as far as the yeast, we don't we don't do much with that. But it's great to just have, you know, a handful of different rums around and we do it all by taste. Well, we get, you know, one of everything we have available to us and we'll sit down and start putting all these blends together until we find something that we like. And then we just scale it up. Do you, do you really think you'd ever go into rums after doing bourbon and whiskey for so long? I wouldn't say no. I, I've learned, you know, all, all these years, all the things I said I, I would never do, 
I end up doing. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've learned never to say never. How's that? Fair enough. That's awesome. Well, Tripp, thank you so much for, again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to really pick your brain and kind of have this, you know, like I said, we've had plenty of 100 yeah. level discussions. This is like a 201 or a 301. <laughs> yeah. I made it a 101 with some of my questions. But, uh, <laughs> hey, yeah. hey, we all, we all learn by asking. That's, and that's, you know, again, shout out to people on Patreon that asked some of these questions for us as well, because uh, without you, you bring a new aspect into this too. So, well, guys, thanks for having me. It's been and uh, it's been great as always. And to everybody who supports Barrel, thank you for doing so. You continue to allow Joe and me and our whole team to continue doing what we're doing. So thank you for that. Make sure you follow Barrel on the social media handles. I know they've also got an email list. You can go to barrelbourbon.com and you can get signed up there as well. Uh, you know, we actually have an email list too. It's at bourbonpursuit.com. You go ahead and sign up and you get notified for every new podcast release that comes out. And also follow us. You can also rate us, ratethispodcast.com slash bourbon. And uh, if you like what you hear and you want to be one of those people that ask one of these questions to one of our guests, be a patron, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. Yeah. And we love our audience and this is what we do. We do it for you. So just keep coming with the show suggestions, feedback, comments. We love hearing from you guys. So with that, uh, we'll see y'all next time. <laughs>